Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Welcome back. I hope everybody is having a fantastic March. We're at the end of March already, y'all. Holy moly. So today's episode, I have with me Dr. Robert Weiss. A few of you have posted about him in our Facebook group, and I think his work is just phenomenal. Um, Dr. Rob is the chief clinical officer at Seeking Integrity, which is an organization that provides online education and residential treatment for sex, porn, and substance-slash-sex-addicted men and their families. Dr. Weiss is an online host for digital intervention on A&E and has served as a subject matter expert for major media outlets, including CNN, NPR, and The New York Times, and now The Divorce Survival Guide. (laughs) He's the author of 11 books. Holy moly. Um, 11. I'm still working on one. Uh, in His books include Pro-Dependence, which we're going to talk about, Sex Addiction 101, and Out of the Doghouse. So for all of you who are wondering, is it sex addiction or is he just a cheater? And does the distinction necessarily matter? And what is sex addiction? Dr. Rob is here to answer all of these questions. Um, we get a little heated in some of our conversations, I think, in this episode. Um, but we are, it, it may seem like that we disagree on some things. And I think we we do on some on some small things, but ultimately I think we're completely in alignment. And I really enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Rob. Very thought-provoking, challenging, and uh invigorating. So Before I get to the episode, I just want to remind everybody that I am still uh, always accepting consultations for Grit and Grace, which is ongoing. I would love to talk to you about whether it's a good fit for you. You can find it on my website, kateanthony.com, and in the navigation tab drop down for uh, Grit and Grace. Um, I'm also taking on a few private clients right now. So be sure to check that out on my private coaching page on my website. And, you know, I've always got my programs. So whatever help that you need, hopefully I cover what it is that you need. And um, there's more on that coming up. But for now, here's my conversation with Dr. Robert Weiss. Dr. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so glad to be here. Oof, this is, uh, I can already tell that we're probably going to have to record another episode (laughs) before we've even started. I feel like this is going to be a very, very rich conversation. That's very, I think it's multi-layered. So why don't we first start with, introduce yourself to our audience. Tell everybody about you and what you do. Well, I'm about this tall. I wear this size. <laughs> <laughs> Christmas gifts, just to say it. 
Um, <laughs> my name is Dr. Rob Weiss. I have a PhD in human sexology. I am an LCSW, which is a licensed clinician. I've been a therapist for 25 years. My area of expertise is intimacy disorders, specifically in men, although I do work with women. I've opened four or five treatment centers around the world, including one with the U.S. military for men with sexual acting out and sex addiction, which has now become a formal diagnosis. I've written 11 books. How insane is that? That's Talk insane. Talk about my addiction. <laughs> that is insane. And I've insane. spoken on stages. <laughs> I used to speak before COVID probably 30 times a year. I was a touring rock and roll band because so many therapists just really don't understand what this work is. And well, let's face a case. Most therapists don't know how to talk. What no? Don't know what sex is. No, let's ask about it. So, <laughs> um, I do part of that. That's so. I, I and I love that there. You have a program in the military, which I, I have a lot of military wives in my mm -hmm. circle, and so I think that's that's really good to know. I don't know that um, a lot of them do know that. So, I want to start with what is sex addiction? I know my, you know my audience is mostly women, a lot of them, including myself, um, have been cheated on and then told that, you know, it's not my fault. I have a sex addiction. So tell, let's talk about that. What is the difference between a sex addiction, cheating? Like, is there a difference? Okay. You just asked seven questions. I did. So I did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the one I want to talk about, uh, it's not my fault. I'm writing this down because I, you know, I'm a little older and I forget things <laughs> and I forget that I'm older. <laughs> I, I so what is sex addiction? So Sex addiction is a compulsive or addictive disorder that has to do with behavior. So in some ways, it's like gambling or gaming or video or even eating where it's not a substance use. The person doesn't, uh, it takes something like heroin or alcohol. It doesn't change their mood in that way. It is more an obsessionality with a particular behavior that they do over and over and over again in an attempt to get validation, uh, repeat trauma, escape from deep emotional pain. For the men I work with, they're not sociopaths. They are mostly very narcissistic, but every, every addict is narcissistic by nature, which is I want what I want when I want it. But I also, do. You, if you want me to speak to, well, let me say a couple more things. Number yeah. one, sex addiction is not about how often you have sex. You can have sex five times a day, 10 times a day, once a year. It's not about that because alcohol is not about how many drinks you drink because some people drink 10 and some people drink two. So you can't do it that way. And then sex addiction is not about what kind of sex you have. So it isn't about whether I'm into men or I'm into women or into leather, or it's not about that either. Mm -hmm. Because from an addiction perspective, that's like saying, well, you're addicted if you drink wine, but you're not addicted if you drink whiskey. <laughs> so addiction in general is not defined by how much or what kind. It's defined by the effect or uh, of that behavior on the functionality of your life. That's right. Yes. So if right. my repetitive sexual behavior is profoundly affecting my marriage, my relationship, my ability to parent my kids. If it's detracting from my education, my school, my ability to date, if my life goals and beliefs and values are being undermined by this persistent and consistent sexual behavior that I am unable to stop, no matter how hard I try, then it's likely an addiction. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was good. That I was like that very good. That was very good. It's a very, a very um, good description of your life becoming unmanageable, right? Right. <laughs> That's. Do you differentiate between, let's say, sex addiction, um, love addiction, relationship addiction? Are these distinct in your in your mind? I believe in sex addiction. Sex addiction is basically about people objectifying body parts. 
So when I walk down the street, it's, ooh, I want a piece of that, or I'd like to, when I'm talking to someone, ooh, I'd like to you know, talk to them, or I'm fantasizing about a sexual activity, and I want to use that to fill an emotional, a deeply broken emotional part of myself. Love addiction, if you want to call it that, I'm not sure I like the, the term, mm -hmm. is about using the whole person to fill an empty part of myself. Yeah. So just like a sex addict doesn't really care who the person is or you know, they just want to have sex with them. In some ways, someone who has the emotional vulnerability around love and intimacy, they partner with someone because they want to feel the emptiness inside. And in the beginning, into you know, the romance, it's really great. In fact, I would think of sex of love addicts as kind of being romance seekers. Right. But once yes. the romance, once the bloom is off the butt, and you get to know this person and you realize, oh my God, what am I doing with this person? Because you never, you were so eager to fill that emptiness inside of you. They actually didn't take time to look at that, who that person was. And you have that pattern of ending up with people who are not just troubled or have issues. Many of us do that, but who are not at all who you'd want to be. Right. I think of that as love addiction. Yeah. And it really is about objectifying the person. I don't care who they are. I will put them in my little square boxes to who I want them to be. They will make me feel better. But as many of the women I talk to, um, you know, they get really involved with them. And this is a love addict, for example. And they'll say to you, hey, Kate, I'm your friend, blah, blah, blah. We're going out to dinner. And I found this new guy that I'm dating. And it's really great. I mean, I kind of don't mind that he's a heroin addict and still living with his ex-wife and, you know, hasn't paid alimony in 12 years. He's just so sweet. He's amazing. And, right. <laughs> I can't stop thinking about uh -huh. him. And to me, that is a, an example of I put the issues aside and who they might be in order to feel loved and feel adored. And that works until it doesn't work anymore. What was the third relationship addiction? Is that the one? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's sort of similar to what you're, you know, it's, it's bouncing from really, but yes. You know. I, I don't believe that there is such a thing as relationship addiction. Okay. And I don't think there's, I don't think we are addicted to people. Mm, I think that is mm -hmm, a very important, mm -hmm. this is why I don't like codependency and we can do a whole show yes, on how I don't believe I, in codependency. And yeah. I think it's blaming and shaming and not right for our time. And mm. we'll have, I hope we have a long talk about that. Yeah. But I think we, what, I think what we are chasing and seeking is a relationship that is fulfilling and nurturing as we all want. But some of us had such poor models. Yeah. We had such poor examples of what a relationship might be that we fit ourselves into ones that don't work or we choose the wrong people over and over again. But the attempt is what I want is not wrong. I want to have love and relationship and I want to find it. It's just that I'm in this constant search. So a love addict might be dating three people at once. They might be, you know, they're all trying to fill themselves up with the emptiness. I think we're all in a search for a relationship. We are, as human beings, naturally inclined to pair bond. Mm -hmm. That is how mm -hmm. we are happiest and do the best when the two of us are, it's two of us against the world. Right. The world is yes, brutal. Yes. But I don't think we're addicted to relationships. I think it's a naturally occurring part of life. Some of us don't know how to have them. But that's right. a whole different ball of wax. Right. And I guess, you know, I think the way that you describe love addiction is is similar to the way that I've understood relationship addiction or heard it described. So it's, I mean, it's, I think it's part and parcel. I do think there, it is essentially that, that desire to fill that hole inside with, with this other person who you have now decided is perfect as a perfect fit for that hole. I agree with you. I just think that 
that love addiction is the idea of finding the right partner over and over mm-hmm. again. And what we call relationship addiction could be defined as an obsession with one person or mm-hmm. an obsession with the next person. No, you're just obsessed with the relationship. Uh, mm-hmm. When you look at the history of alcoholism, for example, mm-hmm. they never said, uh, when you look back to the beginnings of Al-Anon, mm-hmm. Lois Wilson never said that you're addicted to your husband no. or your wife. They no. said you're you're obsessed with their drinking. You're obsessed with their using. Somehow codependency came along and said, oh, you must be addicted to the person. We're not addicted to people. Mm -hmm. We love people and we try to get the best relationships we can with them. Yes. So, um, but we can be obsessed with somebody. Yeah. That for sure. Right. Right. And when we become obsessed with their drinking and, you know, as a, as a long, long, got many, many years and uh, decades of Al-Anon under my belt that, you know, we become obsessed with their drinking. And then when they stop drinking, we don't know what the fuck to do with ourselves. <laughs> right? Well, I think there, when you change, put any change in a part of a system, the rest of the system is going to change. Right. Mm-hmm. And if I'm used to having to turn myself into someone I never wanted to be, you know, nagging, complaining, fearful, worried all the time, that's in relationship to being involved with an addict. Right. And right. yeah, mm-hmm. what I need to do in that situation is turn to focusing and nurturing myself. Yeah. But I That's don't right. see the focus on the addict as being something wrong with you. You know, if you ask me, why do I, yeah. codependency says, oh, well, there's all these things wrong with you. And when you stay with the wrong person, it's because this and this and this. Mm-hmm. And I say you stay with them because you love them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can see the best parts of them that are still, this is really leaning into codependence and moving away from codependency. Yeah. But I did want to say something I wrote down. We really should talk about sex addiction, which is a lot. And I was thinking about your partner, your folks in particular. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of people have abusive spouses Yes, in they various do. ways. Yep, they do. They act out. They they steal money. They're physically, emotionally. But, you know, we could go into all they cheat. But what I often hear from partners, and I just want to put this out there as sort of some sense of peace, is that I will often hear an abused partner say later, but I, I don't know why I still want to see them. I don't know why I still want to spend time with them. They hurt me. They abuse me. And it's to my point, which is when you love someone, you don't just say, oh, well, they hurt me, so I'm done. Mm-mm. You are connected to them. They have meaning to you. And moving away may, from them may be the best thing you could ever do. But the fact that you still feel connected to them, no matter what they did to you, actually is kind of healthy. I mean, I'm still connected to people who are dead, you know? Right. So right. I just think that people should give themselves more grace yes. in still having feelings for people who have not treated them well or harmed them. It doesn't mean to go have dinner with them, right. but it does mean you give yourself the grace of staying. Of course, I still care about them. I, I'm so glad you said that because I hear that all the time from my clients, from people in my groups that say, you know, what's wrong with me? And I say, absolutely nothing is wrong with you. You are a kind, gracious, loving human being. And you love this person because they're not all bad because you don't want the relationship to end. You just want the abuse to stop or you want them to get the help that they, you know, that they need clearly. Um, and there's nothing wrong with you. Absolutely not. I'm so glad you said that. And I use that word grace all the time. Have some grace and compassion for yourself, you know? Um, so <laughs> sex addiction. Sex addiction. About- <laughs> Let's go back to sex addiction. Yeah. Is that just a fancy name for cheating? Actually, it isn't. I wrote a I, one of my eleven books. <laughs> I wrote called uh, "It's called Out of the Doghouse: A Relationship Saving Guide for Men Caught Cheating." Mm. Because, ladies, if you're listening, my experience is that there is no man on the planet 
who understands the depth of pain that a betrayed woman goes through. We just don't get it That's right. because men are wired differently. You know, we are just wired differently and we can, even the healthy of us, healthiest among us separate sex from love. Mm-hmm. You know, we can go to a strip club with a bunch of guys and not think that has anything to do with our marriage. But boy, if we go home and say, hey, honey, I went to a strip club and a great lap dance, that female partner is going to look at it very differently. And so men and women think about di- sex differently. I'm not saying it's okay to go do that. Mm-hmm. But the way I think about someone who cheats versus someone who's addicted is, and I wrote about this in Out of the Doghouse, is, which by the way is my most popular book because men don't have a clue. They think flowers and candy and let's go on vacation. And it's been 60 days. So why, why haven't you forgiven aren't you me over yet? over it? Yes, you know, right. Can we just move on? For, I haven't cheated in six months. I don't know why you're still angry at me. And so, so one of the points in Out of the Doghouse is that cheating, in my mind, is about immaturity. It's about, we have a saying in therapy, keeping the other person in mind. So I've been married for 22 years. I've spent 22 years with a man. We've married about seven years. And when I go to the, to the grocery store, I think about what might he like. When I go shopping, I think, oh, that's a shirt he might like. I'm going to buy one for him. So in some ways, or when I go out in the world, I'm going to spend this money or do this thing. I think what is best for us, not what is best for me. By the way, this is a relationship saving. If you want to hear a relationship saver, this is it. That's right. When I make a big decision in life, I say what is best for us. And if you make that the basis of your decision, you will always make the right one. Yes. But men who cheat are not sophisticated or mature enough, I think, to hold that person in mind. So they go out in the world and they do whatever they do. And they just kind of like, like they're bachelors again. They're just not thinking about it. But I do think that's very different than addiction. Addiction is repetitive. Addiction is about having a completely secret life. It's about having a whole compartmentalized life that usually has gone on since early adolescence. Mm -hmm. And most of the partners I work with will say, I didn't know that he or she was doing this when they were, you know, 17 or 21. And of course, sex addicts don't want to tell you because, oh my God, if I told you, you might not marry me. So I'm just going to hide that I have this huge problem. And then, you know, a partner is 10 years in or five years in, or I've seen 30, 40 years in. And they find out that this person has been looking porn three times a week for 40 years and they never knew about it. Mm-hmm. And or they find about the cheating with the housekeeper and the cheating with the, you know, it just rolls downhill. Yeah. But I would say addiction is about a persistent and consistent lifelong pattern of using images and body parts and people to give my sense of myself a sense of esteem and validation and feeling worthwhile. Why don't I get that from the people I love? That is a complex topic and a whole other discussion. But what I can say is that the people I work with are broken Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they're not bad people. Mm -hmm. I don't think cheaters are bad people. I think they're immature. I don't think people who are sex addicts are bad people. I think they are broken people and they're acting out of trauma, abuse, and the ways that they've learned to survive as children. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it's the case that a really damaged, especially young male, will split love, home, intimacy, and connection from sexuality because for a whole bunch of reasons. And so sex is over here and love and family relationship over there. And I keep them separate for a whole bunch of reasons. And that would be typical of a sex addict. How much of that do you think is rooted in attachment trauma in 
childhood trauma of variety of whatever various sorts first of all i've had i had the first women's sexual disorders compulsive sexual disorders treatment center in the country so i know what drives women i worked with them for years about how to do this but i worked with men a lot longer and i can tell you every man except for the crazy ones like if you really have profound mental health problems like obsessive compulsive disorder and you wash your hands over and over again you might masturbate all over and over again you might do all kinds of things but outside most of those people end up in treat mental health treatment and they get treated for that and those problems stop to almost to a one the men that i work with have profound early childhood parent they were parented in problematic ways they were enmeshed they were neglect i mean i can go through the whole list sure. but generally there's profound alcoholism profound mental health uh, dad's been having affair after affair after affair and that's what they grew up with you know they're really meaningful issues around attachment connection and intimacy that they learned and mostly they learned that intimacy was terrifying that mm-hmm. it was going to hurt them because mm-hmm. when they tried to open up as children they got hurt or let down and all that and that ties to the separating sex and love you know love is a little scary having sex is even more scary because you're even more intimate and more vulnerable. The addicts I work with don't, they want to be close, but they don't. May I tell a little story? Absolutely. I don't want to No, no, no. Absolutely. So I, I run a treatment center. I've opened many of them, but the one I run now is called Seeking Integrity. And I hope you like the name. I do. Integrity, much. which is about integration. And the men I work with are extremely disintegrated. Mm-hmm. You know, sex is over there. But anyway, I run a residential treatment program. And at Seeking Integrity, one of the things I ask uh, a spouse to do, a partner, is we ask them to send us a letter, a couple of pages, and which we're going to read in treatment. And it's about what have you been through? What have you struggled with in this relationship? You know, what have you been hurt by? How have you felt let down? What, you know, and the sex is a part of it. But you would think that someone who sends their spouse to go to treatment for sex addiction would write a letter back to us about, let me tell you all the ways I've been trained sexually. Let me tell you all the cheating, all the affairs, all the, and when I get these letters back, and I've read hundreds of them, 20% is about sex and cheating. 80% is about a lack of intimacy, a lack of connection, a distancing, a you put work and other things before our relationship and our children. You were always the priority. You know, I had to basically, I had two kids and you, which meant I had three kids. So Amen. most of, yep. and I do consultations on the phone, well, online now with couples. Mm-hmm. And the first question I ask the spouse is, have you, before we talk about sex, how, did you feel in this relationship like there's been a sense of distancing and a lack of intimacy once the romance was over? And they've often said, yeah, you know, I couldn't get through to him. He changed the subject. He never wanted to talk about anything serious. You know, he wasn't around. I mean, I get a lot of those. He would be superficial with the kids, but really was mostly about what he wanted to do. Or, you know, I hear all these stories and I realize that it isn't just the sex and the relationship, but it's built on a whole platform of disconnection. Yes. And Mm -hmm. so, uh, and by the way, that isn't necessarily true for cheaters. Cheaters are more driven by testosterone and hanging out with the wrong people. And, you know, we just did this on the bachelor party and, you know, that kind of thing. That's very different than a sex addict. Hmm. So, yes, trauma for sure. Yeah. And you you work with the the um, the betrayed um, and betrayal trauma. And you say that it's really mm-hmm. the the symptoms. It's really symptomatic of PTSD. Like it is not. And I, and I know this from personal experience and from my, from professional experience, like the trauma that is experienced in this kind of betrayal is, it is so intense. It, your whole world falls apart. Well, I, I like it to, to, to the death of a child. Mm. 
you know, you have lost your best friend. You have lost the person who you believed would go out in the world and never do anything to hurt you, especially knowingly know that this would hurt you and do it anyway. You can never look at that person again. You'll never look at them going, I mean, that's whole naive sense of you, of you will protect me and I will protect you. We'll have each other's back. That goes out the window. I think partners are humiliated, embarrassed. I think that they often compare themselves to the affair partner or the porn. And by the way, they've often been told by the addict, well, if you were just thinner, well, if you were just more available, because addicts tend to externalize. It's not that I'm acting out because there's something wrong with me. It's that work is too much and my spouse doesn't want to have sex with me. And it's addicts externalize all of that and the spouses hear it. So by the, by the time someone gets into treatment, their spouse is often feeling enraged deeply disappointed at who they have become in relationship to all this craziness. Um, they become obsessed with the problem as anybody would, right. and they don't know, they don't know how to go forward. So much has happened that they don't know about. And in fact, I will tell you the universal plea from the spouses I work with is if I just knew the truth, just tell me what has happened in this relationship so I can know who I've been in here, how to go forward. And of course, us us male addicts, we just, what we do is we call trickle-down disclosure, which is, you know, you confront us with something and we're kind of like, oh yeah, well, I did do that, but I didn't do anything else. Mm-hmm. And and the spouses kind of come to a, okay, I can live with that. I, I don't like it. And then you find out more. Right. And then it's like the bottom falls out from under you and you wonder how far you're going to fall until the next one. And then you hear a little bit more. And so by the time these spouses kind of realize what they're dealing with and start dealing with it in a therapeutic way, they, they are in free fall. They will say, I don't know if you ever loved me. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you love me now. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you'll ever love me in the future. And their entire lives and sense of self are turned upside down. And I think men think about cheating in a different way than women do. Men experience more as an ego, ego wound, of course, like, am I not this enough? Am I not that enough? And women experience that too. But more often a woman will say, well, what about our home? What about our kids? What about our family? What about our church? It's a more global issue for women. Mm -hmm. So it's threatening to their entire life and everything they've set up yeah. as poster man will just say, well, it was just sex. What's the big deal? And I, I also love when, when men will say, well, it was just an emotional affair. We didn't have sex. And to a woman that also can be worse. far worse. <laughs> right? That's worse. Far worse. Exactly. Because yeah. There's a scene, uh, there's a couple of scenes in movies that I've seen where a man has cheated. And the first thing that the woman says is, you know, did you have sex with someone else? Did you cheat? They're crying. And then they look up and they say, did you love them? And that is obviously the more deep and meaningful pain because it's about, it's about everything. Right. It's not just, you know, I wasn't hot enough or I wasn't this. It's you don't have enough respect and love for the whole thing that we've created. And by the way, if you're my best friend, Oof. as my partner, as my lover, and I, uh, and you're the one who hurt me the most. Who do I turn to? That's right. Who do I ask for help? How do I look at you? And I'll say, Kate, that and I think this is good for women to hear that um, what I often hear makes them crazy is this sense of I love them and I hate them at the same time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I look at you and you're playing with my family and you're making a meal and you're, you know, and you're like the spouse I always wanted. And I think, oh, I just love you. And then I'm, you're looking at TV and you see some sexy person and you're, and I think that's who they were with. That's who we were in my life. And so I hate them. And this feeling of going from I hate them to I love them to I hate them, we call ambivalent. And it's very painful for spouses because it makes them crazy.
And now for a quick word from our sponsor. The all-new, fully revised Should I Stay or Should I Go? After three years of this program existing in the world and changing women's lives, I decided to give it a full makeover. The all-new version has all-new videos, a podcast-like audio stream if you want to take the work on the go, and completely updated resources for deepening your learning. The program consists of six core modules, the first of which is Who Are You? This is the section in which you dig deeply into your own personal development and get in touch with your inner guide, slay your inner critics, mine for values, and learn how to set healthy boundaries. The second module is how you learn to love and helps you understand your attachment style, love languages, and how to properly love and care for the most important person in all of this, yourself. Module three is called, Why Are Women So Exhausted?, and breaks down some of the issues around toxic masculinity and male entitlement, the myth of being a stay-at-home mom, and answers the question, he's fine. Why can't I just be happy? Module four is all about understanding abuse and includes videos on trauma bonds, understanding the cycles of abuse, particularly how they play out in your own relationship, and addresses addiction, infidelity, and mental illness. Module five is all about healing and moving forward and includes videos about therapy, couples therapy, healing from betrayal, emotional regulation, and grief. This section also includes my 90-minute workshop, Tackling Codependence, as well as my signature relationship inventory that will help you gain complete clarity on all the parts of your marriage and figure out what's his and what's yours. And module six answers the question, is the grass really greener on the other side? With in-depth videos on dating, cultural and religious isolation, and what happens if you end up alone forever? Spoiler, you probably won't. Whether you decide to stay or go, this program will set you up for a lifetime of clarity and fulfillment. And if you've already decided to go, the program will help you unpack all that's happened and help you heal so that you can move forward without repeating the same mistakes that got you here in the first place. This program is priced super low at just $697. And if you use the code PODCAST, when you check out, you'll get $50 off the full price. What are you waiting for? You have been agonizing with this decision for long enough. It's time to finally know, should you stay or should you go? And now back to our episode. How do people come back from this? I mean, because that level of trauma from that betrayal is, and and again, like I, I know this, I, I don't know how people, I don't know how people come back from that. And when you say people, do you mean couples or do you mean the person who's been abused and cheated on? I mean, I, I think that- Get it right, Kate. <laughs> Which one do you mean? <laughs> I mean, actually as a couple, right? Now, I mean, because I think, because I think that getting past it as an individual is, is really, you know, that's one thing. That's a lot of work. That's, 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 you know, trauma recovery work and all of that. Right. right? But, and that's like, okay, I can recover, but I'm not with them anymore. I can heal, but how, well, how, how do you, how do you get past this in the relationship? Well, first of all, I can say to every man that's cheated and, or is a sex addict, it's not about apologies. 
it's not about forgive me and I wish I hadn't. And, you know, I'll, you know, and I loved you all along. It isn't about let me do what I, let me show you what I can do to love you now. Mm -hmm. It isn't about let me take you on a vacation and we'll get close. And, you know, it isn't about I'm going to go to therapy now and I'm going to do all these things because I'm really broken. And you have to understand I did this because I'm broken. Mm. It's not an excuse. What I tell spouses is you can't trust anything they say, period. But the way that, and by the way, that's why the, if it's a man, he's out of the doghouse, he's dirtied his home, he's no longer equal, he has to be out of the house on some emotional or physical level, mm -hmm. because why would you want that person around when they've hurt you? But I think uh, for the, the person, for the spouse, it's about seeing behavior that's different. It's about actually seeing them go to therapy. It's about actually seeing them join a 12-step program. It's about Thank seeing you. them get into 12-step meetings. When you see someone who is actively, and by the way, spouses, it's not about saying, did you go to that group tonight? You know, I want to know. It's about me as the person who hurt you taking responsibility by taking the right actions that I need to take. And sometimes I'll tell somebody, you know, I want you to put on your refrigerator in paper and pen, not on the pad. What are you doing for your recovery Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? And a spouse gets to look at that and say, oh, it's three o'clock on Thursday. They must be at their Zoom recovery meeting. And that simple consistency, when I'm, when someone is hurt, you says what they do, do and I can't even say that right. <laughs> when they do, do what, what they, they say, say and say what they do. <laughs> yeah. You know, I have seen spouses who were cheated on, throw someone out, divorce someone because they did, they lied about taking the garbage out. You know, I've had a guy say, oh, yeah, I took the garbage out. And then while his spouse is in the, you know, getting washed up for dinner, he's sneaking the garbage can out to the road because he didn't want to tell his spouse, well, actually, I forgot. And I have spouse, I've had, because they want to deal with the anger. And then I've had spouses say, you know, if you can't tell me when you don't take the garbage out, why would I ever trust you to talk about some of these issues that you've led me along a trail for for so long? Yeah. So I think for the the people who are acting out, it it takes an understanding that I am broken that my brokenness can cause profound pain to the people I love and to me, and that I my I, I need to take active steps on a regular basis to make main to put my illness in remission. Mm. On some level, you could say addiction is like having diabetes. You know, I have to check my blood, I have to do my insulin, and I can be in remission from the symptoms of it. And to me, if you see an addict going to 12-step meetings, getting support, regularly reaching out to other people. Um, go, going to the therapy, you know, going to the treatment center, if that's what they need to do. I tell, the, I tell the spouses of addicts, now you're in charge. Now you get to say, I want you in three meetings a week. And I want you to go to Dr. Rob's treatment center. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. want you, and believe me, yeah. and if you want to save this relationship, that's what you need to do. Yeah. You need to go out there and do the work, take classes, read books. It's interesting because when I do these consultations or have men that I'm meeting with, and I say, have you listened to my podcast? Oh, yes, I listen to it a lot. Sex, love, and addiction. Just put a little plug up in there. Yeah. And I'll say, how did you find the podcast? My wife showed me. Oh, I read all these books and I took a class. How'd you find those? My girlfriend showed it to me. How did you end up in this consultation I'm doing? Well, my wife found you. And I say, well, that's not recovery. That's not healing. That's not how I would come to trust you. I would trust you when you take responsibility for your actions and you begin to realize how sick you are, how much pain you've caused, and that you never want to be that person again. Oh, my God. I love you. So I Thank think that's you. what makes this spouse yes. accountability, structure, and a cons what I say restores trust is consistent, honest, integrity-based behavior over time. Yes. Um, nothing I say, nothing I do. For 
and I guess I want to say this in relationship to the relationship also, and I'll, I can talk about spouses when you ask questions about it. One of the things does not, that does not work in these circumstances is couples therapy. Mm-hmm. Couples therapy in the beginning of, and many people, oh, well, let's go to a couples here. Let's, you can't. Because all that happens in couples therapy in the early stages of cheating is, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, you ruined my life, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and I didn't mean it. But there isn't a lot of insight, a lot of understanding. There's two people trying to, what needs to happen, and this is almost the hardest part of the healing for both, is that a woman who's been cheated on needs to reach outside of her relationship and find other women who've been cheated on for her support. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We offer... Eight, I don't know, eight, 10 support groups that are free. I just have people who monitor, man, and these women go mm-hmm. into those groups for older women, for younger women. We have a trade partners group for men, and I'm not selling anything because they're free, mm-hmm. but um, they get to, you know, I get to sit as a woman and say, wow, she's smart and she's intelligent. And she's good looking. She's around my age and it happened to her too. Yes. And those, yep. and there's some women who've come past that and come through their pain. There's some are just entering it. So I think for women, and really refocus on yourself. I need nurturing. Mm-hmm. I need support. I need friends that I can lean into. And by the way, being cheated on and, and living with a sex addict is not something you can really necessarily tell your sister and your next door neighbor. Alcoholism, you can kind of say, okay, well, he, she has a drinking problem. But to say, oh, yeah, they've cheated with 300 people. And this is really a problem. For example, Kate, how do you go to Thanksgiving? Yeah. When right. your sister and your mother-in-law know that your spouse has cheated with you on 300 people, right? Um, you know, ha- you have to reorganize the structure of your lives and relationship. Once those pieces of the each individual are stabilized and they have communities to support them and some path, then they can turn back to each other and say, how do we work this out or not? But that can take six, eight months before they're ready to face each other and get to work as a couple. It, it's really interesting because the, the the sex addicts in my life, they will talk about it as if there's this intense compartmentalization that split. I there's a split. I have my life and my wife and I love her and she our life is wonderful and we have this great thing. And then there's this other stuff that I do on the side that has nothing to do with her. <laughs> and but yet well in the mind yeah, of the addict that's true. it doesn't. Right, exactly. Exactly. Because you see, if I had to stay in contact inside of me mm-hmm. with how much I love you and how important you are to me, I wouldn't be able to do this. So what I do in my head as an addict is I devalue you. You're not this, you're not that, I'm not getting what I want here, I'm not getting what I want there. And the one thing that drives any addiction, I can say this one word, is entitlement. I don't have this and I don't have this and this isn't happy, so I deserve to right. go do this. Right. And one of the things that I love saying to addicts is, you know, you can be miserable. Your spouse can be fat and ugly and nag and throw things at you and scream and yell. And you know what? You can divorce them. You can get uh, a therapist. You can go help children. You can buy a car you can't afford. But the logical solution, go for a walk, take a back. But the logical solution to a ha- unhappy relationship is not cheating. That's a choice. Right. It is a possible. It's certainly not a solution. But the actual decision to drink, the actual decision to use is never a partner's fault. And I want to say to every partner who's listening is involved with an addict. And I make the woman I work with write this down. There is nothing you have ever done to cause this to happen. There's nothing you will ever do to cause this to happen. And there's nothing you're doing. I cannot make someone else drink. I cannot make someone else cheat. I cannot make them act out. I can make them miserable. 
But that choose choice to do what they want to do and to blame me as a partner, that is theirs and theirs alone. Mm, yes. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying that because it's- You're getting my top 100 it, uh, sayings. Yeah, good. <laughs> good. We're going to You're getting the greatest hits of 30 years of doing this. Um, okay. So let's talk about codependence versus prodependence. And I, and I just, I want to preface this just so you know, that when I talk about codependence, I talk about it from uh, the PMLD perspective, which is the, the trauma that- I mean, I have her tree uh, here next to me all the time. It is behavioral, um, the behavioral branches, behavioral disorders or whatever, the branches that come from the same trauma that will cause addiction or whatever else. Are you talking about spouses? Well, for anyone, for anyone who's codependent. I mean, Pia and those people are writing about the spouse. That's who they're writing about. Yeah, I guess. But it's also, I think that's the same. I think she's also talking about that the addiction comes from the same place. So let me talk about this just a little bit. Yeah. If you have been living with an addict for nine years, Mm -hmm. you realize what it's like to have non-intimacy, lies, secrets, manipulation, gaslighting. Maybe you've gotten an STD or two. So by the time, let's say you're an addict, Kate, and by the time I get you into treatment, I have been Mm -hmm. dealing with a nightmare for years. That's right. And oftentimes at that point, when I'm in a crisis about my entire life being a mess, then you as a therapist turn to me and say, well, let's talk about your problem because you're codependent and you have this and you have that and your mother did this and your father did that and they dive into the trauma. That's not what these people need. Mm, if you sure, have stood by sure. somebody all these years and put, and if you let go of your life, if you completely devoted yourself to their healing, if you have gained 30 pounds and given up everything important to you and you've obsessed on them, well, listen, if they had cancer, no one would say there's something wrong with you. They would say, what a devoted angel you are to have given up all this time and energy to helping the person. Mm. But if it's with an addict, it's, you know, if I give myself up to helping an addict, there's something wrong with me. Mm. And so prodependence says, you stayed not because you're troubled. You stayed because you love them. Right. And love and the hope for change will make people put up with all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Now, what you're talking about, I think you can absolutely look at later, which is yeah. the crisis is over. The person is stable. Do you want to look at yourself? I think there's an assumption among therapists that everyone wants to go through nine years of therapy or has the money or has the resources (laughs) that everybody wants to read 12 books and go to workshops. And they did in the 1980s and 90s. I'm not sure in the world we live in that people have the time, the energy and the focus. Some people just want things to go back to the way they were. Mm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. So the other thing I would say is that if you see me in a relationship that is in crisis, alcohol, drugs, and you see me act out in ways that reflect the trauma I grew up in, that doesn't mean the trauma is driving the problem forward. It means I am reacting to the crisis by demonstrating arenas of my trauma. In other words, when you have, when you're in a crisis, children, for example, you have a set, uh, you have a five-year-old who is completely potty trained, all that stuff. And then grandma dies. And then they start wetting the bed again. And what happens is when human beings are in crisis, they regress. Mm. So in a crisis, when I'm trying to handle my family, the addict, the the working three jobs, whatever, might I become less functional and retreat into ways that I acted when I was younger or things that happened to me? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Is it the time in the first year, let's say, of dealing with the crisis that just ended? Is it that the time to dig into me and tell me what's wrong with me? No. Mm. 
that's the time to love on me and say, and I say this to spouses, I am so proud of you for staying in that relationship. What an amazing person you are to have lived through that pain and those challenges because you still have the love in you and you still, you're the one who holds the good in that person. You're the one who's holding on to the memory of who they might be. And I think that's a great reason to stay. And I'm not saying stay for abuse. I'm not saying, saying stay for being hit, stay for, but to stay through someone's illness and to hope and pray for them and be a, make sure their kids get to school, make sure the house, you know, all of that. I think that comes out of love. And even if the pathology, the issues that I act out, I yell, I scream, I whatever it is, to me, that escalation of past trauma comes out of being in a crisis. One of the chief problems, I think, with codependency is it basically said that all the family members are feeding into the problem, that all their past trauma and their past issues are now playing out into the addiction and they're making it worse. Well, it may be that some of their problems are making it worse, but it's not because they're their intention is to play out their childhood problems. What they're intending to do is do the best they can in a crisis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, if some of what they do ends up reflecting the trauma they grew up with, well, that's because not because you're playing that into the relationship. It's because you're reacting to the crisis that you're in. When you, So I have taken codependency and flipped it. Mm -hmm. And rather than saying, let's, let's look at what's wrong with you for staying in this situation. It's so troubled. It's so sick. Or you know what? If you don't fix yourself, you're going to find someone else just like this. So you better get to work. I say what a hero you are for staying with that person and how amazing you are. And maybe you didn't do all the right things when you were with them. But you did you grow up learning about how to work with addicts when you were in high school? Did yeah. you go to school for what we go after spouses like they're supposed to know mm. how to deal with this stuff? So what do I say to a spouse is you did the best you could. And I'm amazed that you did. Right or wrong, I'm really impressed with you. And now let's go back and see what was effective and what wasn't and why it was effective. Looking at here and now. Mm. A spouse who's in a crisis about an addiction doesn't need to look at themselves. They need to figure out how to get through the day. Right. And so I'm much more interested in helping them in the here and now than helping them, than asking them to look at the past, which actually makes people more overwhelmed. So right. we could talk about this forever. Yeah. But let me also say that codependency has never been a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It's never had research to prove it. It's not something you can bill for because insurance doesn't believe in it. It's not mm -hmm. in any of our mental health guides. Mm -hmm. And listen, I'll rant one more time. Go for it. <laughs> if you're in Ohio and you send a client to Seeking Integrity and you say they have depression, well, I can go into my fancy depression book and I can see the criteria for depression. Mm -hmm. And I can say, oh, you identify those four things in the client that you have in Ohio and I'm seeing in California. We can agree that they're depressed based on these criteria. Uh -huh. But there isn't a diagnosis for codependent. Mm. So there's only 370 books that most therapists have run, written from their own personal experience. Right. So if I'm working with a client in California and you work with them in Ohio and you say they're codependent, what are we talking about? Right. Are we talking about a book that was written in the 80s? Are we talking about Pierre? Are we talking about books that were written in 3000? Because there are 370 books. On the topic of codependency, mm -hmm. none of them have been validated. None of them have research. None of them uh, exist as a diagnosis. So I'm a, I like science under my work. Can you tell I could rant about this all day? I can. I'm so sorry. No, that's okay. I think I'll say one more thing. Okay. Far too many marriages could have been saved 
if it wasn't for codependency. If people were not told separate, individuate, go out there on your own, figure out who you are, rather than let's deal with this crisis and put your issues on hold for a little while, and then let's see how it works with the two of you when they're sober. Let's see how it can go forward. I think there were many people who were told, boy, this person is doing well. Why don't you find someone else? And I don't think that's served a lot of relationships. I know we disagree. No, no, we don't disagree. No, no, we actually don't disagree on that. I guess what I, you know, what I see overwhelmingly is um, the partners not actually wanting to do the work, not actually, you know, calling Dr. Rob and figuring out, you know, what to do or making the call, making one call, going to one meeting, going to two meetings, but like not actually diving into the work. Right. And so then. Well, what do you consider to be the work? That's where we differ, because I don't think the work means self-examination at the beginning at all. I think the work in the beginning is nurturing yourself, finding peace with yourself, finding peace with what's happened, validating yourself for the hard work you did. No, no, I mean the work for the addict. I mean the addict. Oh, I'm so sorry. I was thinking about the work for the spouse. No, no, I don't think, Noah, because I, I think you're absolutely right. It's not their fucking job, right? It's Thank you. (laughs) That's pro-dependence. Right. You did the best you could, and I'm not going to blame you for any part of it. But what about the addict? You were talking about the addict. But when the addict doesn't do the work, when the addict mm-hmm. is, you know, making excuses lying, and lying and cheating, right? I do think when I when I'm working with clients, because their focus is so much on them and trying to get them and you know, and all of that, that that shifting the focus, which is, you know, the work of Al Anon, sort of we take the focus off of sure. the alcoholic and we put it onto right. ourselves. Um, right. And shifting that and saying, okay, like, and and having a more, a, a detached, I don't want to say detachment, but a more subje- so objective. My word would be boundaries. View. Well, boundaries. that's a good one. Yeah, right. And I think that. <laughs> that's a great word. Unfortunately, many people think that I'm setting boundaries to get you to do something different. Mm-mm. If I ask you to leave, then maybe you will stop drinking. No. Or if I don't let you in my bed as you wouldn't with a sex addict. And by the way, ladies, if you're a lady and someone has cheated on you and you're thinking, well, we've been in bed together for 30 years. Why would I get it? Uh, I would ask you, why would you lie in bed with someone you don't trust? That's right. Why would you have sex with someone you don't trust? But that's a whole other set of circumstances. Boundaries are for myself. Yes, that's right. I don't want to be in a house with someone who is actively cheating on me. I don't want to lie in a bed with someone. I don't want someone around my kids who's drinking. It's about me. Mm-hmm. And when you are, and I think that's what you're talking about. I need yep. to set clear lines mm-hmm. around what it, I need to feel safe. That's right. That's right. And I think it is it is important to do the self-work and the inner work. When the other person isn't looking at themselves and you also have been, you have been focused on them, but they're not focusing on them. It is time to turn uh, you know, put down the magnifying glass and pick up the mirror. Maybe in a year. Mm. Because when I love someone who's an active addict, I am in crisis. And, you know, I wrote Prodependence and I really looked mm-hmm. at where is that partner? I did a lot of research mm-hmm. with therapists. Where is that partner? And 90% of them said, if I'm involved with an active addict, I am in a crisis. Yeah. Crisis prevention literature says people are asked to look at the past, get overwhelmed and confused. People are giving complex ideas to figure out when they're in the middle of the crisis, they get more overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. That when someone's in a crisis, you give them simple answers, you give them simple direction, and you support them, support them, support them. Mm -hmm. I think what a lot of therapists automatically do is say, oh, you're with an addict, let's treat you for codependency. And I say, well, what matters to me is 
how are the kids getting taken care of? Yeah. What needs do you have? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, How can we take care of you? How can we help you get through this situation? And once things are stable, then if you wish, then we can look at the past and how your part is in it. But I'd love to come to some peaceful conclusion between us about (laughs) that, you know, which is in the beginning, they need support. And as they grow, they can begin to look at themselves. That's that's really all I'm saying. And and, well, there is one more thing. It's really important to me with spouses that we don't throw nasty names at them. I don't want to tell someone that they're enmeshed, that Mm. they're nagging, Mm -mm. that they're too vigilant. You know, what I want to say is they're deeply involved. They're frightened. They're doing the best they can because Mm. we can frame all those problem behaviors as coming out of love and care. Rather, it's not helpful if I nag you all the time, but I'm not doing it because that's who I am. I'm doing because we're in a crisis and I'm just trying to get you to be different. And I don't know how. Yeah. So anyway, I will often hear partners say I've become someone I never wanted to be. Yes. And I think that's what we often see in therapy. Yep. I relate to that. I absolutely relate to that. I did not like who I was in my marriage. (laughs) I absolutely did not. I wanted to ask you one quick question before we wrap up, which is about children. And about the impact of children who mm-hmm. on on children who may not be aware, right? Because very often mm-hmm. I hear people say, like, well, you know, I it's it's fine. Like the kids don't know. The kids, you know, we we've really we hide mm-hmm. it really well from our children. So they're not really aware of what's going on. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, children know everything. <laughs> children know everything, and they tell their brothers and sisters. Mm. So um, so you can't. I don't think there's any assumption my children don't know. Um, They know something. They know either mom and dad aren't getting along or there's tension in the house or no matter what age they are. I've certainly had older kids. I was just talking to a couple recently and this this couple's 11-year-old found dad's porn extensively. And then when she was 16, she found out that dad was on a hookup app and she could read. So children can be directly impacted in ways that are extremely problematic, or they can be indirectly impacted by the feelings and the experience of what's going on in the relationship or both. Mm-hmm. But let me tell you, there is a new book. I'm so, so glad it came out. Um, it's on Amazon. It's by a friend of mine, Dr. Ken Adams. And he wrote a book called, it just came out, A Light in the Dark, A Light in the Dark, The Hidden Legacy of Adult Children of Sex Addicts. And even though he's talking, A Light in the Dark is what it's called. And even though he's talking about uh, adult children, he asked them lots of questions about what was it like when you were younger and what did you want to hear and not want to hear and how did finding out affect you and all of that. I will say something to all spouses of sex addicts. Please do not tell your children. Please don't tell your children. No Mm -hmm. child needs to think about their dad's sex life. No what child needs to think about their parents' sexuality. It's damaging to them. You will never get out of your head. And I've heard young women, you know, were teenagers, they found out, and then they say later, I don't know if I can trust who I pick as a partner because mm. this was my dad and how yeah. he was my role model. And sometimes an angry spouse will tell a child vindictively, like, well, let me tell you what, your dad... But then they don't realize that that, ch- that child is going to have that in their head the rest of their lives. And they are, and they feel that they're half of their parent. And so what's wrong with me? Is this going to be me? Does this, you know, is this wrong? And if they're younger, they're terrified that, you know, they're going to be alone or it's their fault. 
So I do think it's always essential, at least from my experience growing up. I just wish and I hoped that no one ever did say to me, you know, we weren't the best parents. We made some mistakes. That would have been everything to me. So I do just to own their part. So I do think parents need to say, yeah, we're having some issues or dad let me down or you need to let them know that there is a that. They already feel it. So you have to validate the reality. And then you have to tell them, I love you. It has nothing to do with you over and over again. And dad and I will both love you and we'll never leave you. And, you know, all that reassurance. But they do need validation that what they see and feel is true. That's right. I think one of the problems when a child finds out is they will take sides. So if you and I are married and then they find out that I hurt mom. Well, then if me and mom try to work it out, they're going to say, well, you hurt my mom. I don't want you as my dad or, you know, and that's not helpful for you and me as partners to try to figure it out. Right. Okay. I could yeah. talk about this forever. I Can know I, I could too. Yes. I would love for you to come back. I think it's okay. because like, this is what I started off saying. Like, this is so nuanced and so multi-layered, and there's so much in here. And I am so grateful for all of your insight and wisdom. And I I love it. I love it. So yes, I would love to have you back. In the meantime, tell people where they can find you um, and how they can work with you and your free groups. These are great. I have a a website called seekingintegrity.com, Seeking Integrity. And on that, you can find all the free blogs, all the free podcasts, all of the free YouTubes. I really believe in giving things away. I really do believe, as I said, Kate, that many people will never go to therapy or not afford it or never go to 12-step meeting. They don't have time. But if they can learn, if I can give away information that will – and I have people who call me about sex, love, and addiction, the podcast, and they will say – I don't know where you came from. I don't know who you are, but you're talking about my life. Yeah. And that's so, well, anyway, so on Seeking Integrity, you'll find all the free resources and there's a lot. Mm-hmm. I do two uh, question and answers a week uh, from there that anybody can drop in for free and those anonymously. Are on, and those are on YouTube and they are phenomenal. You guys, they're, they're phenomenal. Go on Seeking Integrity. There's podcasts, there's groups for spouses, groups for addicts, groups for drug and sex addicts. There's uh, the free groups, all of my books on our on Amazon and yeah, or listen to this podcast a few times because you'll probably get, get plenty <laughs> out of it. But I am Rob at seekingintegrity.com. And I think what I'm really good for is resources in particular. I am always glad to say, here's a therapist in Ohio who does the, does this work. They can help you. Here's one in Spain. Because mm. the one advantage of doing this for 30 years is I know who the good therapists are. Oh, that's great. That is great. So we're glad, I'm glad to help. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Dr. Rob, seekingintegrity.com, everybody. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.